Welcome to the first episode of Season 6 of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I am Vice Admiral Peter Jones of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. We are beginning this season with a podcast dealing with the Royal Australian Navy's first naval engagement, the battle between the Australian cruiser Sydney and the German cruiser Emden off the Cocos Keeling Islands on the 9th of November 1914. It is sometimes referred to as the Battle of Cocos. This podcast will also touch on the fascinating story following the battle and its legacy that lives on to this day. To tell this story, I am joined by, online from Potsdam in Germany, Rear Admiral Henning Bess, a retired naval officer of the Federal German Navy. His grandfather, Hans Bess, served in the Emden. Henning is head of the Emden family, which is an association of Emden descendants. Online from Sydney, Mike Carlton, who is a journalist and best-selling author of a number of books on the Australian naval history. He wrote the aptly named First Victory, which deals with the Cindy Emden engagement. And online from Fremantle, Wes Olson, who is a locomotive driver with the Pacific National Railways and a noted military and naval historian. In 2018, he wrote The Last Cruise of a German Raider, The Destruction of SMS Emden. Thank you all for joining me. So first off, let's set the scene. Mike Carlton, can you briefly describe the state of the war from the Allied perspective in late 1914, and why was Sydney in the Indian Ocean? Yeah, one of the uh, enduring myths of, of the First World War in Australia is that we did not have a dog in the fight, uh, that it was a European war, that it was a battle, that, if you like, between the crowned heads of Europe, principally between two cousins, uh, George the the Fifth and Kaiser Wilhelm. And that was true to an extent, but as the, uh, the tensions mounted in Europe, and the, uh, the naval armaments race uh, got hotter and hotter at the, uh, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th, uh, Australia began to feel directly threatened by the, uh, the German colonial empire. Now, the, uh, that was quite substantial in the Pacific. The, uh, the Kaiser had uh, East New Guinea, uh, the Bismarck Archipelago, note the name, it's still called that today, uh, Nauru, Rabaul, German Samoa, uh, more Pacific islands to the north, and most important of all, perhaps, uh, a naval base at Tsingtao uh, in China. And based there was a very powerful and modern naval squadron of uh, largely of cruisers, the uh, East Asiatic Squadron. And it was, uh, it was a powerful and mobile and well-commanded unit, uh, which I guess you could say policed the, uh, uh, the German Pacific uh, Empire. Now, to counter this threat, and it was a serious threat, uh, we got ourselves a Navy. And the, the centrepiece of that Navy was a, was a brand new battle cruiser, HMAS Australia. Uh, 22,000 tons, four 12-inch guns, 16 four-inch guns. Uh, an astonishing, grand and imposing acquisition for an infant Navy. An extraordinary thing to buy. She was the most powerful ship in the Southern Hemisphere by far, and it tipped the balance of power. Uh, 
naval power, Australia's way. Now, along with HMAS Australia, we bought two fast, modern, light cruisers, Sydney and Melbourne. And in November 1914, both these ships, Sydney and Melbourne, were in the Indian Ocean escorting a convoy carrying the Australian Army from Western Australia towards Ceylon, then the Suez Canal, and as the plan was then, uh, to the war in Europe. That was the first Australian Imperial Force, first AIF, of some 21,000 men and almost the same number of horses. Everyone knew that a German raider, uh, the Emden, was prowling somewhere in the Indian Ocean, but nobody knew where. And Sydney and Melbourne were there, along with a Japanese cruiser, actually, uh, to try and counter that threat from the Emden. So thanks, Mike. Uh, Henning Bess, uh, as Mike uh, briefly talked about the German East Asia Squadron, and uh, and in this uh, podcast series, we um, we covered its fate um, in a podcast two years ago. But can you briefly describe how Emden found herself in the Indian Ocean in November 1914? Yes, okay. The light cruiser SMS Emden was sent to East Asia immediately after its commissioning in April 1910 to the Germans' cruiser squadron stationed in Tsing Tao, as Mike just mentioned. That port of Tsing Tao was... Uh, um, contractually leased by China to Germany since 1898. Uh, until the outbreak of World War I, Emden undertook various trips and military actions in East Asia, partly alone and partly as part of the squadron. The port was a logistical base, used for shipyard mooring and for recreation between seagoing tides. Fleet visits of different nationalities took place frequently and international friendships of officers and sailors developed many events and sporting competitions. At the outbreak of war, the German squadron faced units from France, Russia and Japan in East Asia alongside the British squadron. Uh, when Admiral Graf Spee decided to go with the squadron into the Pacific, he detached Emden into the Indian Ocean together with a cold steamer to wage cruiser warfare on its own as so-called raider, as Mike mentioned. She disrupted the opposing trade in the following first three months of the war successfully, very successfully. She brought up a total of 32 ships, commercial steamers and warships. The Allied shipping came to a standstill in the region and due to extremely skillful route selection, a very good portion of luck of the skilled, she could remain undetected despite being hunted by many enemy ships. A special cunning that the opponents could not imagine was Emden's replenishment at sea from the Gola, which was previously not considered possible. Thus, Emden kept the Allied forces in suspense. The Allied trade almost came to a standstill in the Indian Ocean. That's in short uh, what it was all about. Thanks, Henning. So um, let's find out a little bit more about the protagonists in this battle. Uh, Wells Olson, can you describe briefly the, um, the features of HMAS Sydney? Uh, yes. Um, Sydney was four years younger than Emden superior in every respect. She was bigger, faster, and carried more armour. When Sydney was completed in 1913, she was the latest word in British cruiser, light cruiser design. 
She displaced 5,400 tonnes, spitted with steam turbines, capable of 25 knots. It was in the gunnery and torpedo departments that Sydney had the upper hand. She was armed with uh, eight 15.2-centimetre guns, the old six-inch, two 53-centimetre torpedo tubes. Her guns had a maximum effective range of 13,000 metres. Fired fairly heavy shell for the day, uh, 45.4 kilograms. She had a five-gun broadside, uh, so could deliver a, a five-round broadside of 227 kilograms, which was almost three times the weight of Emden's. So it gave Emden, uh, sorry, it gave Sydney a massive advantage in a gun battle. Okay, thanks, Wiz. Uh, Mike Carlton, her commanding officer was uh, Captain John Glossop. What was he like? Yeah, John Glossop was a really a typical uh, Royal Navy officer of his time. He was the son of a clergyman, like a surprising number of uh, Royal Navy officers. Nelson himself was another one. Uh, Glossop was a cadet at the Royal Naval College, Britannia, a midshipman in 1887. And this was at the height of the Victorian era of empire when the Royal Navy did indeed rule the waves with uh, power and pomp and pageantry, and he was brought up to that. Uh, Glossop arrived in Australia the next year, 1888, uh, as a midshipman in, uh, in a cruiser, HMS Orlando, sent out to Sydney to be flagship of the Australia Squadron. And he seemed to develop a liking for the place because somehow he kept coming back. He was uh, the navigator in a cruiser out here in 1896. He commanded a, a gunboat in Australia around the Pacific in 1902. And then another larger cruiser based on Sydney in 1908. He was promoted captain in 1911, the same year the Royal Australian Navy was uh, officially born. And Glossop let it be known, and I quote here, that he was anxious to command a ship of the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, I imagine it was much more pleasant than driving a cruiser around the North Sea in the middle of winter, but he certainly got his wish. Uh, he officially transferred to the uh, RAN in 1913, and uh, they gave him command of uh, HMAS Sydney. There's one interesting fact about him, though. In all that career, he had never once fired a shot in anger. So all that was about to change. So, um, Henning Best, can you describe uh, the Emden and her captain, Carl von Müller? Yes, SMS Emden was a small cruiser, as mentioned, of the Imperial Navy, built from 1906 until the first commissioning in 1909. The ship was 118 metres long, with a displacement of about 3,600 tonnes. She had steam engine propulsion, was heated by coal, and thus reached a speed of maximum 24 knots. Her main armament were 10 guns of the caliber 10.5 centimeters with a range of 12 kilometers. In addition, there were two torpedo tubes with a total of only five torpedoes on board. The normal crew was 365 men, 16 of whom were officers. Commander Carl von Miller was the third captain of the ship. He took command on May 29 in 1913, just before his 40th birthday. He had joined the Imperial Navy as a cadet in 1891. After his usual training as a naval officer, he had numerous onboard duties as officer of the watch, navigational and artillery officer, including two years on a small cruiser in Zanzibar and German East Africa. 
From 1903 to 1905, he passed the Admiral Staff Officer's course and later also served as an Admiral Staff Officer in Fleet Command. Among other characteristics, he was judged to be a skilled, diligent and thorough officer with excellent artillery and tactical knowledge. And in addition, his superiors attested to him a noble character and a sympathetic being. So as a follow-up, uh, Henning, can you tell us something of your grandfather? My grandfather, he was uh, born in 1877, joined the Navy in 1896. One of his first seagoing duties was of Kaiser and Augusta in East Asia from 1901 to 1903. So he was well prepared for his later deployment 1911 on board of Emden in that region. Amden was considered the sleekest and best ship of the East Asian squadron. On board, strict and demanding service was observed and the service requirements were very high. Just as important as the service on board were the social obligations ashore, especially in Tsingtao and Shanghai. This concerned both the foreign German, Germans living there abroad and the international contacts with other ships. My grandfather, was first lieutenant of the ship. As such, he was responsible for the education and training of the crew. He was therefore instrumental in driving the ship's good reputation. As reported above, he formed the spirit of the crew. Besides strictness and discipline, comradeship and harmonious togetherness were very important to him, only at first glance contradictions. He was popular with his subordinates and the officer corps. He left his successor a very well-behaved crew, trained for combat when he was routinely relieved of his post at the end of 1913 and then returned home. So he was not aboard during uh, the Battle of Cocos. Thank, thanks, Henning. Um, so where's Olsen? Uh, we've heard about uh, Glossop and the ship itself, but can you tell us something about Sydney's sailors? Uh, yeah. Um, Sydney had a complement of uh, 434 officers and men. Um, although she was an Australian ship, she had a mixed crew. Roughly half the officers and ratings were British Royal Navy men on loan. The other half um, were all Australian Navy, including 15 boys. But most of the senior positions, uh, Captain, as Mike I mentioned Glossop, he was Royal Navy, as were many of his senior officers and senior um, staff and specialists. Um, one of the boys, John Ryan, had only recently joined Sydney, being part of a small draft that was embarked on the 25th of October. And that was to replace uh, 10 men who'd gone adrift. Sydney had been up in the uh, islands chasing up the German East Asiatic Squadron and uh, whatnot. They'd come back and 10 men decided that they'd had enough. I think they probably regretted that later. But uh, overall, Sydney had a good blend of older, experienced men, younger ones keen to master their trade. They were well-trained, well-drilled. Uh, but as Mike said about Glossop, the crew were the same. They were yet to follow a shot in anger. Thanks, Wiz. Um, so, heading best to complete the picture, uh, what can you tell us of Emden's crew? Um, at the outbreak of the uh, war in 1914, the crew consisted of 372 men, 19 officers, 
13 tech offices and 337 non-commissioned offices and enlisted men, and three Chinese scrubbers what was standard at the time. Half of the crew had been on board since May 1913, the other half since June 1914. The period of service on board the units in the East Asia squadron was normally two years, and the change of half the crew took place annually in order to keep the level of training and knowledge always up to date and at high level. Up to the Battle of the Cocos Islands, several embarkations and disembarkations of crew members took place due to the necessity to provide prize crews and part crews for captured ships. A number of volunteers, re reservists from German merchant ships joined them too. As a result, the crew's strength on 9th November was actually 364 men. By the time the first officer left the ship with a landing party of 50 men in the morning to destroy the cable station on Direction Island, the ship was left with only 314 men for the engagement with HMS Sydney. Unfortunately, much of the landing party was artillery personnel, which was, of course, a significant disadvantage in combat. Thanks, Heading. So, so now, indeed, we do come to the events of the 9th of November 1914. So first to you, Wes Olsen. The Emden arrived off Cocos Islands in the early morning. What was von Mueller's plans and what initially occurred? Well, the main reason von Mueller went to the Cocos Islands was to create a diversion. What he really wanted to do was sink merchant ships, our merchant ships. He thought he would try his luck in the Arabian Sea and the northern Indian Ocean. That's where he wanted to go, but first he had to create a diversion because he knew the Royal Navy was hunting him and he needed to do something to draw enemy warships away from where he wanted to go. He believed that an attack on the uh, cable and wireless stations on Direction Island at the Cocos Group would uh, give the impression that Emden was moving south uh, towards Australia. This, he hoped, would draw his pursuers south, or he went north. The uh, raid was actually planned for the 8th of November, but on the night of 7th of November, the wireless station on Direction Island started transmitting coded messages at hourly intervals. Von Mueller had no idea what these messages meant, who they were being sent to, he was concerned enough to delay his uh, raid by 24 hours. Unknown to him, it was the first Anzac convoy. Uh, it was nearby, en route to Colombo. The transmissions were intended for the senior ship of the convoy escort, but this time it was uh, the armoured cruiser HMS Minotaur. She was required elsewhere, so she'd been ordered to leave the convoy and proceed to South Africa. When Minotaur broke while a silence on the morning of 8th of November to acknowledge receipt of the order, Von Mueller realised that a British warship was dangerously close. He considered delaying his raid by another 24 hours, but further transmissions from the British warship uh, indicated that she was steaming away from the Cocos, so he decided to go ahead. The raid would go ahead on the 9th of November. Now, Emden had already detached her collier, the prize ship Burest, uh, so she would... Uh, Emden would enter Port Refuge at Direction Island at dawn on the 9th. If the island proved to be undefended, sorry, if the island proved to be defended, Emden would shell the cable and wireless stations and then depart. If the island was deemed to be uh, undefended, 
a landing party, as Henning mentioned, would be landed. They would go ashore and destroy the, uh, the stations with charges, explosive charges and axes. And if all went well, Burisk would then be summoned uh, so that Emden could take on coal in the sheltered waters. The raid commenced well enough. Uh, Direction Island was found to be undefended, so Don Mueller ordered the landing party ashore. He then summoned Buresk, and then things went wrong. Okay, thanks, Wes. Uh, Mike Carlton, how was the first AOF convoy alerted to Emden's nearby presence, and, and what was the reaction? Well, picture the scene. Uh, sunrise on uh, on Direction Island, as uh, Wes has mentioned there, and one of those cable and wireless telegraph operators coming off watch saw this strange and unexpected ship in the harbour. Now, at first he thought it was that four-funnel British cruiser, HMS Minotaur, the ship that Wes mentioned. Pretty soon it became pretty clear that one of the, the four funnels was a dummy, and uh, most peculiar of all, the ship was flying no flag, no national ensign. Uh, so they put two and two together, came up with four, and concluded it was most likely, in fact, could only really be uh, the Emden. So as fast as they could, they started sending out uh, a message on Morse code. SOS, SOS, strange warship uh, in the harbour, repeated uh, several times. Now, they only got out of two or three or four of those before uh, Emden heard them and started to jam them, but they'd got them away. And those signals were received by Melbourne and Sydney, the two Australian cruisers escorting this AIF convoy, which then was just about two hours away. Now, Emden had no idea that the convoy even existed, and the people on Cocos Island didn't know where it was either. And sensibly, uh, and this is vital, neither Melbourne nor Sydney replied to that SOS. They maintained radio silence so as not to give themselves away. Melbourne picked up speed and began to head off towards Cocos until uh, her captain remembered that he was a convoy senior officer and therefore could not leave it and stay. So he sent Sydney instead. She began working up to a faster speed, rattling and shaking, smoke pouring for her funnels, and she got up to around about 25 knots. Here was a trick. One British ship, as was mentioned, did answer the signals from Cocos. Uh, that was the cruiser Minotaur, which is uh, well away to the south. Emden heard that answer and guessed from the uh, very weak signal strength that the nearest British warship was at least a day away. So plenty of time and more to land that raiding party to uh, destroy the Cocos Island or the Direction Island uh, wireless station. So the scene is now set for a battle with uh, Sydney closing the Cocos Islands at speed, just two hours steaming away. Wes Olsen, what were the preparations going on uh, on board the Sydney and, and did Glossop have a particular tactic he wanted to employ? Uh, yes. Now, Captain Glossop was essentially a man of routine. He didn't like to change things. Despite the fact that Sydney might soon be in action, hands were piped to breakfast at the regular time of eight o'clock. Half an hour later, the order was given to prepare the ship for action. This basically meant just clearing away tables, chairs, uh, running out fire hoses, charging with water, that sort of thing. No serious effort about going to action stations yet. At nine o'clock, all available members of the ship's company were assembled on the quarterdeck for his daily ritual of divisions and prayers. Now, at divisions, Glossop spoke to his officers and men and warned them of the possibility of action. He stressed the necessity for steadiness in battle, 
ask the older men to set an example for the younger men and boys. And then he, uh, he turned to the chaplain and had, them, had him lead the ship's company in prayer. Meanwhile, Glossop decided to make his way to the compass platform on the upper bridge. Now, by this stage, Sydney was fast approaching the Cocos Island. She'd worked up to a full speed, as Mike said. What was going through Glossop's mind, I'm not really sure. He'd either lost track of time, doubted the enemy was still at Cocos, or was desperately keen to look unflappable. What we do know is that when Glossop reached the compass platform, he ordered a reduction in speed so that he could complete his preparations for battle. He assumed that the enemy ship at Cocos was either Emden or Konigsberg, another light cruiser in the Indian Ocean, but he knew that either of them were inferior to Sydney. What was understood about the German guns on these small cruisers at the time, the 10.5-centimetre guns, was they had a maximum range they believed of about 8,700 metres or 9,500 yards. So Glossop, probably in conjunction with his gunnery officer, decided to engage the enemy at this range. This meant that Sydney would be at risk of damage from the German guns, but 9,500 yards, 8,700 metres, was a good shooting range for Emden's, uh, was a good shooting range for Sydney's guns. Probably two hours had now elapsed, and Sydney was yet to go to action stations. So Henning Bess, at uh, 9.15, the, uh, the two cruisers came in sight of one another. What was uh, Muller's reaction? Well, when a cloud of smoke came into view on the horizon at around nine, the Emden anchoring of Port Refuge initially thought it was the own cold steamer Baresk. The landing party had been on Direction Island for over now about two hours. However, when it was realized at 9.15 that it might be a warship, von Müller ordered the landing party to accelerate work. Then everything developed very quickly, as the obviously enemy warship was approaching at very high speed. He had steam put on, all boilers gave several recall signals for the landing party and ordered weigh anchor and clear for battle for the ship. The enemy was initially mistaken for HMS Newcastle. Von Millers quickly realized that the landing party could not be back on board in time and therefore ran at top speed out of the archipelago on a north northwesterly course in order to get into a favorable position for an engagement. At this point, however, the boilers did not yet have enough steam for maximum speed. Von Müller wanted to get into a position from which he could inflict such early damage on the enemy with his artillery that would reduce his speed. At a range of 9,000 9, metres, he opened fire. So, Mike Carlton, the battle began at 9.40am uh, and would effectively last for about two hours. Can you take us through the action? Yeah, uh, Emden indeed landed the first blows uh, with Sydney in sight to the nor'east off his starboard bow. Uh, von Müller gave the order to open fire at exactly 940 uh, the distance was called down from the ship's stereo rangefinder on the signal platform above the bridge, uh, a very accurate instrument for its day too. And from the, the conning tower or the bridge, they watched as, the, as their first shells soared away like a, a flight of 
black crows, and they saw from the distant splashes that they went well wide and beyond Sydney. But the second and third salvos drew closer, and a minute later, shells from the fourth salvo uh, hit the Sydney. Now, by any measure, this was superb gunnery, honed to perfection in months of practice. One shell howled into Sydney's after-control platform behind the after the fourth funnel, wrecking it and sending pieces of shrapnel flying here and there. One, one chunk of metal passed between the legs of the officer at the rangefinder there, Lieutenant Geoffrey Hampton, neatly gouging a scoop of flesh from both inner thighs, hurling into the deck drenched in blood. A second shell hit nearby, wounding uh, other men. One sailor took 18 sharp metal splinters, another lost an eye, and so on. And another shell from the same salvo uh, almost brought disaster. It blasted onto the uh, the upper bridge where uh, Captain Glossop and his uh, gunnering officer, Rahili, were standing together uh, by the voice pipes. But in an extraordinary stroke of fate, uh, it did not explode. If it had, it would have killed the captain and every man with him. But as it was, just the, it carved the trail of havoc, described by leading signalman John Seabrook, who was metres away. This is what he said. This shot, first of all, cut away a pair of signal halyards, cut the range taker's leg off below the knee, cut the range finder in half, went through the hammocks lying in the inside of the bridge, cut a bridge rail off, went through the screen, burst in the awning, which was rolled up and flaked around the upper bridge. One piece went straight through the lower bridge screen, taking exactly half a pair of binoculars with it, which were left hanging there. The range taker, a young bloke named Albert Hoy, had lost a leg. Uh, because Captain Glossop had made a lethal mistake. He'd underestimated the range of Emden's guns, 9,000 metres. It was not his fault. Uh, nobody on the British side, not the fleet, not the Admiralty in London, none of the, uh, the British uh, gunnery experts realised that these German guns had this range, that they could elevate to an unheard of 30 degrees. The higher angle uh, sent the shells further. But Sydney recovered. Glossop uh, withdrew out of range, and from that moment, really, uh, the battle was his. He continued to pound Emden as hard as he could. Uh, von Muller was twisting and turning at one moment, and shooting back, of course. At one moment, he attempted to make uh, a torpedo run. But surely, relentlessly, his ship was being pounded to pieces uh, and uh, men were dying. The carnage grew, her, her decks running with blood. Sydney received not another hit. Uh, eventually... Uh, Captain von Müller decided the only course left to him was to run the end in the ground. The engines were still working, and uh, picking up speed, he drove her onto a, a rocky reef on uh, North Keeling Island. And Glossop, Captain Glossop, then sent his famous signal uh, to Melbourne, back with the convoy and indeed to the world, uh, Emden beached and done for. So at probably this point, uh, Henning Best, can you uh, tell us what was transpiring on board Emden? Yes. Uh, from Emden's point of view, the second salvo from the Emden hit the Sydney already covering. That's what Mike Cotton just mentioned. Von Miller now tried to get a little closer to the enemy. In the meantime, however, Sydney had been shot in. Emden took several hits. One shell destroyed the radio room. One put the crew of the first gun out of action. The electrical communication of the artillery failed, which made the transmission of orders to the guns much more difficult. The rudder in the conning tower and the rudder telegraph failed. Orders had to be given by voice tube. 
it became increasingly difficult to supply the guns from the ammunition chambers. The front chimney crashed down. The number of dead and wounded rose unceasingly. 20 minutes into the battle, the steering gear failed and the hand rudder could not be moved. This meant that the ship could only be steered with screw commands. As a sailor, you know how difficult that is. One gun after another failed or slowed down due to lack of ammunition. Fires raged in several places on the ship. One Miller tried to get closer to the Sydney within torpedo range and then fired a torpedo, but it missed. Then the funnels and the foremast were shot down. The bridge received a hit. The second attempt to get within torpedo range failed. The boilers could not produce enough power. When the artillery was completely out of action and the CO, the captain, saw no more possibility of damaging the Sydney, he decided to put his ship, which was totally shut, shut up and burning in many places, on the reef on the windward side of North Keeling. To make it a total wreck and also to avoid pointlessly sacrificing the survivors of the crew. After the ship hit the reef, the fires in the boilers were put out, ammunition rooms flooded, the guns rendered useless and secret items destroyed or thrown overboard. The many fires were extinguished and the wounded had to be cared for. The battle had cost the lives of 134 brave men 21 were seriously wounded and 44 lightly wounded. That was the battle. Thanks, Henning. Um, now, we've mentioned earlier the Collier uh, Berek. Uh, where's Olsen? Uh, how does she f figure in this battle? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the captured British Collier uh, Uris was commanded by a German Naval Reserve officer, Oscar Klopper. Uh, he was not a regular member of the uh, Emden's crew. He'd been picked up uh, from a German merchant ship early in August and had been taken on as a, a spare officer, as a prize officer, essentially. Um, Burisk had a great deal to do with uh, Emden's undoing because when, uh, when Mueller wanted to summon her to Direction Island so he could take on coal, he had his uh, wireless operators transmit uh, code signal to them. The German wireless equipment was had a distinctive note, and as soon as they started tapping out that message, it alerted everybody that there was a German wireless station, i.e. a German warship in the vicinity. And that was part of what alerted uh, Captain Silver on Melbourne, Captain Glossop on Sydney, and even the, uh, the Japanese captain. So they knew something was going on. Anyhow, um, when it was realised that... Uh, there was a strange warship approaching. This is uh, Sydney. Uh, Clopper, Clopper uh, observed this smoke cloud and realised something was amiss. Uh, he decided to stay put, as well to the north of North Keeling, and just wait for events to unfold. And when he realised that uh, Emden was in trouble and the action started, he tried to assist by sending gunnery observation reports. As the battle uh, did progress and he realised that Emden was going to be destroyed, he decided to do a runner. It was time to quit and go. But uh, after Emden ran onto the reef, Sydney set off in 
pursuit. Uh, when Sydney caught up with Burisk, she fired a shot across her bows, ordered her to stop. Clover had no intention of letting his prize be captured, recaptured by the enemy, so he promptly scuttled her. It was only when Sydney picked up her crew that Glossop learned that the cruiser he'd been fighting was actually Emden, not Konigsberg. And while Sydney was returning to North Keeling, Glossop took the opportunity to question Clover about why Emden was there, von Mueller's likely intentions if he'd survived. And uh, Clover said something uh, that was quite jarring. He said that von Mueller would never surrender. So, Mike Carlton, the most controversial part of the battle came when Sydney returned to the Emden. What occurred? Yeah, Sydney returned uh, at around about 4pm. Emden, of course, was still stuck fast on the reef, uh, a shattered wreck. And this was the, the tragedy, I think. It was that John Glossop and HMAS Sydney opened fire again on Emden's shattered hulk. Now, he didn't do so immediately. Uh, Sydney slowed almost to a halt, perhaps four kilometres off, while Glossop and the, and the watch on the bridge scanned the enemy with their glasses and telescopes. Now, they could clearly see the destruction they had wrought and the men in the midst of it. They could also see that the, uh, the German ensign, the enemy ensign, was flying, still flying from what was left of a mainmast. Now, perhaps the Germans wanted to keep fighting. Glossop... Uh, ordered a signal to be sent by flag hoist, do you surrender, in English. There was a long pause, and then from Sydney they could see a small figure replying by waving semaphore flags, a jerky message in English which read, what signal, no signal books. Uh, Glossop tried again, this time also by semaphore. He repeated his first signal, do you surrender, no answer. And then a few minutes later, have you received my signal? Uh, this time, uh, there was no reply. So uh, Captain Glossop ordered Sydney's gunnery officer uh, to open fire again. Now, he would say later in his report that he did so reluctantly, which is no reason to doubt. Uh, and as Wes mentioned there, he'd been told by the uh, people from the Buresque that uh, von Muller would never surrender. That obviously had a big impression on him. So the, the firing continued. Eventually, uh, a German sailor on board Emden, uh, Arthur Werner, managed to climb the uh, Emden's mast and, uh, and to hack the ensign down, and Sydney then ceased firing. I think it was a terrible, regrettable error. I mean, legally, uh, Captain Glossop was perfectly within his rights. The German flag was still flying, indicating a ship uh, still capable of action. But it was obvious that Emden was a wreck. Now, he could have stood off out of torpedo range, if that was his worry, and he could have sent in a boat under a flag of truce. He had with him German officers from the Buresk. He could have sent them in, uh, in a boat under a white flag and negotiated there. So I think it was tragic that he did open fire and caused a great more unnecessary loss of life. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Henning Bess, have you got anything to add um, on this point? Yeah, I totally agree to Mike Carlton's opinion. Uh, that was really tragic. And I think it was an extremely difficult decision for von Müller to put his ship on the reef after he had realised that the battle and thus the ship was lost, that there was no longer any possibility of harming his opponent. Let us consider the spirit of the times. It was a worldwide code of honour not to surrender to an enemy. 
and instead prefer to die a glorious, heroic death. Von Müller decided against this course of action. He saved the lives of 180 officers and men with his action instead. He left it at destroying the ship on the reef in such a way that it could not be recovered by the enemy as a war trophy and then used worldwide. For this, he deserves our unqualified appreciation, I think. Thanks, Henning. Uh, where's Olsen? Have you got anything to say uh, on this issue? Uh, yes, Peter. Um, the previous uh, effort by uh, Emden, the raid on Penang, um, gives us a bit of a lesson in history. Um, Emden had gone in to raid Penang Harbour. Um, when she was coming out, she, was, uh, she encountered a French destroyer, the Muscat. He decided to, Emden, Von Mueller decided to engage Muscat. It was a much smaller ship, but uh, uh, Emden quickly got the upper hand. Uh, Muscay ended up as a burning, shattered wreck. Von Mueller then ceased fire and waited for the Muscay to strike her colours and raise the white flag. She didn't do so. So Von Mueller ordered a resumption of fire and he kept firing until Muscay sank. Then he went in and picked up survivors and then treated them quite well. But that was his code. That was the way he operated, and really for him and his men to have expected anything different from Sydney, um, I think, is drawing a long bow. Admittedly, von Mueller had a hell of a lot to worry about. He'd survived the battle. Most of his men hadn't, or quite a few hadn't. His ship was destroyed. He's probably in a state of shock himself and probably just overlooked the fact that his uh, naval ensign was still flying. But... Uh, for Glossop as well, time was against him. His primary duty after destroying Emden, seeing that she's no longer uh, a threat, she's on the reef, was the uh, Cable and Wireless Station. He really couldn't afford to hang around and play niceties and, and then go back while there's still light to see what was happening on Direction Island because he was already been informed by, um, by Clover and his men that, there was a raiding party there. There was a landing party on Direction Island. So one job's over. He has to hasten off and, and see what's happening elsewhere. Yes, but sir. It was just a, a, a terrible, sad ending to what had been uh, a good fight. Yes, so as we said, it was a controversial um, aspect to the battle. So the battle ends um, and now begins that phase of saving life. Uh, Henning, can you describe um, the, the scene in Emden after the, the end of the action? Well, I'll try and do my very best because I don't think any of us can imagine how terrible the situation was on board. The ship was a pile of rubble. It was burning in many, very many places. Several compartments were underwater. Seamen were trapped. Poisonous gases were drifting through the ship. Dead and screaming wounded lay everywhere. The urgent task now was to care for the wounded, put out fires, render guns useless, and destroy secret items. Firefighting was extremely difficult, as the water for extinguishing the fires had to be fetched from the outside 
with buckets. The commander then gave permission for the uninjured to jump overboard and save themselves on the island because it was also feared that the ship would break apart. Many drowned in this attempt. The attempt to establish a line connection ashore failed. As the Sydney had set course for Direction Island after taking over the crew of Buresk, the crew of the Emden had to hold out until the next day on the upper deck and amidst their dead comrades without drinking water, in scorching heat and fires that flared up again and again. When the Sydney returned at noon, the rescue of the crew and the further care of the wounded could be continued. So Wes Olsen, uh, can you describe that effort on the part of Sydney to tend to the injured? Uh, yes. Um, Glossop and Sydney's ship's company went to enormous lengths to recover and help Emden's numerous wounded. Initially, there were 186 survivors on board Emden uh, or on the island over a third of whom were in need of medical attention. The rescue effort commenced at midday on the 10th of November. It took nearly five hours to ferry the survivors and ship's boats from Emden to Sydney. Only a small number could be got in at any one time. So a lot of work, a lot of effort went into transshipping these men, especially the badly wounded. A handful of survivors had managed to swim ashore um, after Emden had struck the reef. Others had been blown off and and managed to get there. Sydney landed a party on the island in the afternoon of the uh, of the 10th to recover them. But again, lights fading. They couldn't be got off until the following morning. So it was a case of trying to look after the, the wounded, the injured on, on North Keeling as best they could. One of them, Joseph Brzezinski, was in a bad way. He had a large wound to his left thigh. His left arm had been shattered by uh, shell splinters. He'd lost a lot of blood, needed fluids, but there was no water to be had on the island. One of Sydney's boys, boy first class John Paling, volunteered to climb the coconut palms to knock down the nuts for their milk, essentially for Rosinski, but also for the other wounded. When Paling returned to Sydney later on the 11th, it was noted that his chest, arms and legs were skin raw from his efforts of climbing the, the palms. His efforts saved Brzezinski's life. Now, Sydney's senior surgeon, Len Darby, uh, together with his small medical team, which included Emden's surgeon, Johannes Luther, they had the hardest job. They ended up with 90 patients to care for, Emden's and Sydney's. They worked themselves to exhaustion trying to save life and limb. Darby worked without rest for 40 hours, and incredibly, only four of Emden's wounded died during that period. When they um, reached Colombo on the 15th of November, um, there was still a great number of badly wounded on board. And Glossop was a compassionate man. Uh, and out of consideration for the German wounded, he requested there be no cheering when Sydney entered harbour. Thanks, Wes. Uh, Mike Carlton, what was the reaction to Sydney's report of the battle, both in the convoy and, and I guess, globally? Well, there was great rejoicing uh, on the Allied side uh, around the world, not just in the convoy. Uh, 
Emden had been creating havoc and making headlines for quite, for quite a while. She'd sunk a couple of dozen ships. And strange as it may sound, she'd also sent insurance rates for shipping through the roof. It was just getting expensive to put a ship to sea. So everyone was happy when that was over. But a great menace had been removed, enormously pleasing in London to the Admiralty, uh, the First Lord, Winston Churchill. Uh, in Australia, there was ecstasy. Uh, it was the first great victory of our, our young Navy. Britannia rules the waves, uh, the Nelson tradition, all that. Uh, we were worthy sons and daughters of the empire. Uh, the Australian lawyer, poet and war correspondent, Banjo Patterson, uh, met Captain Glossop when Sydney arrived in Colombo, wrote about him, found him to be modest and unassuming and so on. But there was also, and this is, this is curious, there was considerable admiration uh, for Captain Von Muller too. The London Daily Telegraph newspaper wrote uh, in an editorial, this is, this is quite strange, there are, it's almost in our heart to regret that the Emden has been captured and destroyed. We certainly hope that Commander Von Muller, her commander, has not been killed, for, as the phrase goes, he has shown himself an officer and a gentleman. He has been enterprising, cool and daring in making war on our shipping and has revealed a nice sense of humour. He has, moreover, shown every possible consideration of the crew of his prizes. So far as is known, he's destroyed over 74,000 tonnes of shipping without the loss of a single life. There is no survivor who does not speak well of this young German, the officers under him and the crew obedient to his orders. The war on the sea will lose something of its piquancy, its humour and its interest. Now, the end has gone, but she had to go because she was so expensive. I don't know whether people fighting the war found all that piquant and, and humorous at sea, but that was there was a great deal of admiration for uh, uh, Captain Von Mueller, as indeed an officer and uh, a gentleman and a worthy foe. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so in the story, we've still left uh, Germans, Australians and British on on the Cocos Islands, so we must cover what happened to them. First, Henning Best, what happened to the Germans? Well, there was a landing party on, uh, on uh, the island. After destructing the telegraph station, the landing party had in vain tried to reach the Emden in time before she weighed anchor. Instead, they had to watch or listen to the battle between the Emden and an enemy unknown to them from the island. First, they prepared protecting themselves against the enemy landing on the island. Since the fate of the emblem was unclear to them, the first lieutenant decided to commandeer the three-masted schooner Ayesha, lying on, off the island as spoils of war, and made, make it provisionally ready for sea with the help of the crew of the telegraph station. To do this, the sails had to be put back on the ship had to be equipped with provisions, water, and everything else necessary. The crew of the station helped with the true British sportsmanship. Von Mücke did not want to surrender to an overpowering opponent under any circumstances, and therefore decided to leave the island with the Ayesha shortly before sunset. This was followed by a six and a half months odyssey across Sumatra and onward tra travel with a German steamer choosing to the Red Sea. On adventurous routes, on land and by boat along the coast, and finally by rail, the men of the landing party reached Constantinople on 23rd of May, 1915. So clearly you could do a podcast just on 
their exploits and experiences. But uh, where's Olsen? Yeah. Uh, where's Olsen? What about the uh, Telegraph Station and its men? Well, the Wireless and Telegraphs. The Wireless and Telegraph Station staff were civilians, so uh, they were well treated by von Mueger and his men, unlike their equipment, which was smashed with axes or blown up with explosives. It took three charges to topple the uh, timber wireless mast, but the story goes that the station staff requested that the mast not be dropped onto their nearby tennis court. Uh, The demolition party obliged. They made sure that it fell well clear of the court. So... The Germans were... But it landed on a case of whiskey instead, I think, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, they were were fairly well treated and the Germans were obliging. Um, Not so much with the underwater telegraph cables. Uh, The Germans uh, were trying to sever the cables. Uh, It's what took quite a bit of time. There were three main cables in the lagoon, one to the UK via Rodriguez Island, one to Singapore via Batavia, one to Melbourne via Perth. There was also a length of spare cable, and I, I suspect that uh, the station superintendent left it in the lagoon deliberately. It was a smaller diameter cable that uh, was no good for anything, really, except as a decoy. And um, the superintendent, Dover Ferrand, um, he was quite amused to see the, jo- the Germans fall up and start cutting the spare cable. They wasted so much time on it that they only managed to locate and then cut one of the main cables, the one to Perth, before the landing party was recalled to Emden. The, um, the arrival of Sydney then provided the station staff with a, a new sport, new spectator sport. Several had climbed the roof of one of the buildings to watch Emden steam out to give battle. And they were also able to watch Von Mooker and his men coming back to the jetty, having been left behind. And uh, one of the station staff, perhaps teasing the Germans a bit, uh, asked one of the officers if he played tennis. And uh, I think the humour was quite lost on the German. He had better things or other things to worry about. Um, We now know uh, that von Mucha, realising that Emden was probably not going to return, as Henning said, commandeered the old schooner Aisha. Barrett initially tried to talk him out of it uh, because he knew that this vessel was old and rotten, it's unseaworthy. But when von Mucker uh, insisted on taking his chances, Grant and his men eagerly assisted the Germans. They provided as much food, water, uh, any stores that they required, even gave them maps, directions to go in. And as they left, they gave them three cheers, which the Germans responded to in kind. But there was a reason why Ferrant and his uh, men were keen to see the back of the Germans. They'd been warned in advance that there was a possibility that uh, the Germans would attempt to raid on the station and damage or destroy it. So they'd hidden quite a lot of spare equipment, batteries, uh, instruments. So as soon as they could get rid of the Germans, they could uh, recover their, their uh, instruments and batteries and try and get back to work, get in touch with the outside world. And they were um, quite successful. By the morning of the 10th, they had established communications with Batavia. And uh, when Sydney turned up uh, later, they were able to um, take one of the boats that Sydney still had in tow, one of Buress boats, and use that to repair the underwater cable. So before too long, they were back in business and doing their usual uh, work and playing tennis. 
Thanks very much, Wes. So before we conclude this remarkable story, we must cover its aftermath and legacy. Um, Henning Best, what was the reaction to the loss of Emden in Germany? Well, the successes of Emden became known to the population in Germany as early as end of August. After the shelling of Madras and the attack on Penang in September, Emden's successes were then reported in great detail as far as possible in the international press as well. Since the emperor's special favorite child, the Kriegsmarine, was quickly relegated to a role of fleet and being, and there was also little positive news to report on all land fronts, the successes of Emden were instrumentalized for propaganda purposes. They were to continue to fill the population with pride and joy for this war. The heroic deeds of the Emden were reported in all media. On the one hand, this served to maintain the war morale of the population. On the other hand, it was also a means of justifying to the population the enormous economic costs of naval armament and the misplanning of the Kaiser's fleet policy. An Emden mood prevailed in Germany and a multitude of books, brochures, songs and poems and even toys were written about the so-called heroic deeds of the Emden. This propagandistic euphoria continued for years. It also served to maintain the sense of heroism and confidence in victory among the population against the backdrop of frozen land fronts and enormously increasing numbers of casualties. So as a follow-up, what happened to Captain von Müller? Karl von Müller, together with most of his crew, was initially taken prisoner on Malta. From there, he was taken alone to England in October 1916, and then to Holland in the course of a prisoner exchange in January 1918. He was finally allowed to return home in the fall of 1918. There he got promoted to captain and served the last weeks of the war in Berlin in the Reichsmarinamt. After his discharge, he lived in seclusion in Blend, Blend, well, sorry, Blankenburg in the Harz Mountains. He lived modestly and even refused to publish his memoirs in book form. He was eager to help the survivors of his crew who had only returned from captivity in 1919, where possible and necessary he helped. He was eager to participate in the reconstruction and reorganization of his country and became a deputy in the state parliament of Brunswick. He married his wife Jutta in June 1920. They had two children. Unfortunately, he was in very poor health condition as a result of war and imprisonment and died much too early on 11th of March, 1923. Thanks, Henning. Uh, Mike Carlton, uh, briefly, what about Sydney and, and Glossop? Well, Captain Glossop was fated as a, as a hero, of course. Um, he was made a, a companion of the bath, CB, the, the usual royal honour for a victorious captain at sea. 
Uh, he stayed in command of Sydney uh, until 1917. Sydney uh, spent most of the rest of the war uh, in the misery of the North Sea, the, the cold and rain and wet, uh, a particularly unpleasant and, in fact, fairly boring uh, time for her, although she did, uh, Sydney at one stage, tangle with the Zeppelin airship. Uh, Glossop came back to Australia to become, a, uh, to become captain in charge of Naval Establishment Sydney. He was promoted Commodore, married an Australian uh, in 1918, and eventually, uh, in 1921, he retired as a, as a vice-admiral. But I think hanging over him, there was always that question of whether he'd done the right thing of shooting uh, on the wreck of the end. And I think it possibly blighted his career just a little. Yes, so um, one other aspect we haven't covered is that there's a, a large number of relics uh, from uh, both ships. So, Wes Olsen, can you just uh, talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, Peter. Um, not so much Sydney. There's a few items uh, around Australia, but uh, Emden was really picked over. After she ran aground and was left, um, the wounded been taken off, uh, able-bodied people have been taken off, the ship was left in the care of a dead. The uh, Admiralty decided to send out a smaller ship, Cadmus, to, to clear up the, the wreck, uh, dispose of the bodies essentially, bury any on the island, uh, but also they had a view at trying to learn something from Emden. The guns, the Admiralty wanted a, a specimen of one of her guns. They also wanted uh, a torpedo, anything else of value, uh, signal books, code books, that sort of thing. The, um, the scene on Emden was so appallingly bad that Cadmus's crew couldn't really do much except just shovel the remains of the crew off. Um, it wasn't until later that they, they came back again uh, and started to recover items. The Australian government wanted a trophy. They wanted one of the guns. Admiralty got one. A torpedo went to the Admiralty. A searchlight went to the Admiralty. Uh, then there was uh, some discovery of the, the chests on board, the safes. Uh, they were found to be intact, although damaged. Uh, one was burnt. Um, and they made efforts to break open the safes. And lo and behold, they found thousands of Mexican silver dollars, which were subsequently recovered. The wreck was very much left alone then. And there was uh, actually uh, an effort in Australia to try and salvage the ship refloat her and bring her back as a, a massive war trophy. Um, negotiations took so long and the sea took its toll, basically broke Emden's back and that was the end of that. Um, Navy took one final look at the Emden in uh, 1915 and decided it was too risky to risk any further attempts at salvage. But the governor of the Cocos Islands, uh, John Clooney's Ross, he he thought better of it. Uh, possession's nine-tenths of the law. It was in his chain of islands, so he decided to take advantage of this gift and uh, took as much as he could off the wreck. Cases of beef, corned beef, salted beef, tins of sardines, timbers, non-ferrous metal, anything that he thought he could use or make a dollar on or a pound in those days, he removed he also went to great effort and great expense to recover 
two complete guns off uh, Emden's forecastle, two spare barrels, and a few other items. And then uh, he tried to sell them to the Commonwealth government. Uh, it was initially ignored, but uh, then eventually the Australian government realised, well, we might take him up on his offer, and uh, they subsequently purchased all he had. And most of those items are now on display around Australia, either in museums or in naval establishments. Um, one of the, um, the guns originally recovered uh, by Cadmus, that's the one that's now in Hyde Park in Sydney. The ones that Clooney's Ross salvaged, uh, one of those is on Garden Island, at the uh, Naval Historical Society's uh, establishment there, and one is with the Australian War Memorial. So there's quite a bit of Emden uh, floating around. And indeed, one of the uh, nameplates, as Henning mentioned, ended up back in Germany. Yes, so Henning, um, besides the nameplate, is there any other relics of the, the Emden that found its way back to Germany? Not really. Nothing of, of the Emden uh, herself. Uh, it's just uh, personal items of the crew members who survived, uh, especially items of uh, Karl von Müller and uh, the family of or the descendants of Karl von Müller a couple of years ago gave all those uh, things to the Maritime Museum in Wilhelmshaven. Now some uh, items uh, which had been given early on to the museum in Emden. Uh, there are several uh, Mexican silver dollars in private uh, hands, but uh, mainly it is uh, personal memorability of uh, crew members uh, now in the hands of uh, descendants, nothing else really. The main tag uh, is in the Chief Petty Officer's Mess in Wilhelmshaven, and that was given, uh, I think, in the 30s uh, by RAN to, to the German Navy. Thanks, That's Henning. It. Now, at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that you were head of the uh, the Emden family. Can you actually tell us something about the Emden family? Yes, from the initiative of Captain von Müller to help the Emden's crew members in need, meetings of alumni were initially held in small circles at a local level. From 1924, this became regular annual and nationwide meetings. At that time, of course, this was a purely men's circle, which became increasingly larger, and they met once a year if possible, and uh, if they could afford it to travel in Germany at that time. The motivation for this cohesion was initially the social component of mutual support, but also certainly the memory of the deployment in East Asia and the successful time they had gone through together in the cruiser war which they had fought under their commander, Karl von Müller, chivalrously and fairly recognized worldwide. This comradeship welded them together and lasted a lifetime. The Second World War brought a pause to the meetings, but soon afterwards, the old gentlemen resumed their gatherings despite economic problems. In 1957, the group, which was now getting smaller again, decided to hold their meetings together with the women in future. This remained the case 
children were also present and they met annually at different places in Germany. Since 1993, none of the old men of the occupation are still alive. However, the descendants have decided as a matter of course to continue the tradition which with child and child and as a loose community, the Amden family. This now includes the third, fourth and fifth generations. We meet to continue the tradition of our forefathers, to remember their great deeds, to maintain and continue our friendships. There are no constraints, no membership fees and no rigid organization. The annual meeting is organized in turn by a volunteer in his or her hometown somewhere in Germany. As you know, we also maintain contact with Australia. Some of us, including me, took part in the 100th anniversary celebration on Cocos Killing Island in 2014. For all of us, these were very moving impressions and encounters that we will never forget. Indeed. So um, thanks very much, Henning. And uh, to conclude, I'd just like to ask our panel for their final thoughts on the legacy of the Cindy Emden engagement. So Henning, to you first. Uh, when war broke out in Europe, uh, SMS Emden had served in Far East for four years. Her home port was Tsingtao in China. She was together with ships from UK, Russia, United States of America, and a variety of other nations. Their crews took excursions together, partied together, played sports together, and ultimately formed friendships. None of the Emden crew contemplated the possibility of war, but when it became a reality, they followed the rule of the Kaiser and the national politics with loyalty and patriotism, which was the spirit of the times. Surely it was not easy for them to face their friends as opponents, but emotionally they did not regard them as enemies, and this was what ruled their coming actions. Captain Carl von Miller and his crew treated all prisoners, be it Navy guys or civilian seamen, with fairness, left them with their human dignity and military honor. The crews of captured ships were shown respect. They avoided victims. No crew of the 26 captured merchant ships lost a single life. The captain of SMS Emden, Carl von Miller, was held in his high regard both in our country and throughout the world. The ship and her crew became myth and legend. This way of treating adversaries made SMS Emden well known all over the world as gentlemen of war. In today's war, way of warfare, it would do well to remember this more often. Thanks, Henning. Uh, Mike Carlton, what's your thoughts? Um, if I can be a little flippant here, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's appropriate, but uh, in the first match, Sydney versus Emden, it was Australians 1, uh, Germans 0. Uh, bizarrely, in the Indian Ocean, uh, in 1941, another German-Australian battle and another HMAS Sydney, the second HMAS Sydney, in which both ships were sunk. Uh, it would be best if we don't have a third match to make a decider. I think we could possibly evade that one. But seriously, uh, 
this has led to a remarkable friendship uh, between what were once uh, old enemies. And I think a valuable association between the Royal Australian Navy and uh, today's modern Deutsche Marina. Uh, there'll always be an HMAS Sydney in the Australian Navy. There's no doubt about that. I don't think there's an Emden currently in the German Navy, but I imagine that one day soon there probably will be. And that is right and appropriate too. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Wes Olsen, what's your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, uh, I agree with both those sentiments. Um, in a physical sense, I, I think the relics recovered from Emden's wreck are a lasting legacy of the battle. Uh, we mentioned the nameplate. That was presented to the German government by the Australian government in 1933. Uh, the deal was sort of brokered through Britain. And the British press were, uh, were following the story of how this plate was going to be returned and then presented and unveiled on, uh, on Emden 3, a uh, third ship to carry the name. Um, one British paper, the Daily Express, wrote that it was a, a fitting end to one of those stories, those last stories of personal chivalry and modern war. Captain von Mueller of the Emden had fought like a knight of the seas. Essentially, the Admiralty had honoured von Mueller for his chivalrous action when he went into captivity. He was permitted to retain his sword, even though he didn't have one. But Australia, by returning the nameplate, that was also seen to be a great honour. And it was considered that Australia was honouring the entire ship's company by returning their nameplate. But there's another item that I did touch on. Uh, the 10.5 centimetre gun in Hyde Park. It was recovered from the wreck in 1915 and in 1917 was mounted on top of a memorial to those members of Sydney Ship's Company who made the supreme sacrifice in November 1914. In many respects, the gun is also a memorial to Emden's fallen. I mentioned Joseph Brzezinski earlier. Brzezinski was a gun layer. Despite being badly wounded during the action, remained his post on Emden's number two port gun until the very end. He was one of the few German gunners to survive and was regarded as a genuine hero. Um, he subsequently lost his arm. Uh, Darby had to remove his left arm above the elbow. He was kept as a prisoner of war for a short period of time and then repatriated because he was considered no longer uh, fit and of use to the German war effort. He then disappears from the scene. We just don't know what became of him. But what we do know is that similar displays of devotion to duty in the Royal Navy resulted in the individual being awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, or in some cases, a Victoria Cross, like Jack Cornwall on HMS Chester. My research indicates that the Hyde Park gun is Emden's number two port gun. If so, it's Rosinski's gun and serves as a lasting tribute to one man's courage and devotion to duty. Thanks, Wes. Um, sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Henning Bess, Mike Carlton and Wes Olsen. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Its produ production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.